morning's scripture reading will be taken from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, I hope over the course of the past several weeks you've been blessed with our study of 1 Peter, this very strange study that we've engaged in. Today will be our next-to-last lesson in this series. We'll conclude it next week uh, with a lesson that will actually come out of 2 Peter, but uh, it's a, a beneficial lesson and it's strange. So we're going to complete this series next Sunday morning with the lesson out of 2 Peter. Today we're going to conclude our study technically of 1 Peter by looking at 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 6, 6 through 11. And one thing you'll notice in this passage, in this passage, Peter is urging us to have a strange view of reality. I heard a story about three professionals who were discussing which profession was the oldest. There was a doctor there and he spoke up and he said, you know, according to the Bible, God removed one of Adam's ribs. And, gave it, and used it to make Eve. So therefore, the oldest profession is that of a doctor. Well, an engineer was present, and he said, well, yeah, but before that, the Bible says that, that God created everything, took chaos and created everything that there was. And so in order to do that, that requires an engineer. So an engineer is the oldest profession. A lawyer happened to be there, and he leaned forward and he said, yeah, but who created the chaos? And that's such a fitting story because the name Satan refers to somebody who is an accuser and is set in opposition to Jesus who is identified as an advocate in 1 John. And that title of accuser is used in terms of a prosecuting attorney. It's a legal concept that Satan is accusing us. It's a lawyer, if you will. And so our strange view of reality has to be centered on an understanding of how this world is operating. And Peter reminds us of that here in 1 Peter chapter 5. In 1 Peter chapter 5, he's going to speak about Satan a little bit because he's reminding us that in this world, there is a spiritual realm to it. And so this morning, we're going to look at this view of reality because guess what? The world rejects it. Where does the chaos come from? Where did evil originate? Why is there suffering in this world? It all traces its roots back to an understanding of this strange view of reality that Peter talks about. And here's why our view of reality is strange. It's because our view of reality insists that Satan exists. Look again at 1 Peter chapter 5 and look at verses 8 and 9, or verse 8 really. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. 
your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So, so Peter draws attention to the existence of one who is called Satan, one who is called the devil. You know, just as the world fails to acknowledge the existence of God, it fails to acknowledge the existence of Satan. And while the disavowing of God's existence breaks his heart, the disavowing of Satan's existence brings a smile to his face because that means he's already succeeding. See, Scripture teaches that the evil problem in this world is a devil problem. You know, according to the Bible, think about this, who introduced man to evil? It was the serpent who, in Genesis chapter 3, in the first five verses, lied to Eve about the consequences of eating the forbidden fruit, and in so doing, initiated a craving which led to mankind's first sinful decision. And that serpent is identified in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9. He's identified as the one who is called the devil and Satan, the one who is the deceiver of the whole world. So we're left with no questions about the identity of that serpent. He is the devil. He is Satan. And how is Satan routinely described in Scripture? No less than ten times in the New Testament, the title of evil one is associated with Satan. And the connection between Satan and that title of evil one is most apparent in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. If you look at Ephesians chapter 6, you'll notice in verse 11, it says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, a few verses later, in verse 16 of Ephesians chapter 6, after uh, Peter gives, um, excuse me, after Paul gives instructions about the uh, shield of faith, he says to take that up, because with it you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And so in Ephesians chapter 6, the title of the devil and the description of the evil one are used interchangeably. So we know the basic characteristic of Satan. See, Scripture maintains that behind all the chaos, behind all the evil, all the tragedy, all the suffering that happens in this world, there's a real spiritual entity at work. He is called the devil, and he is the evil one. But I also want you to notice this about Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 doesn't just identify the source of evil as the devil. It also indicates that the devil is warring against us. Paul instructs us to put on the whole armor of God so that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Then in verse 12, he explains why we need to put on and stand against. It's because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. You see, God is the creator of all that is good, so as the evil one, Satan has set himself up in direct opposition to God. And while God is the creator of this world and, we have the, and he will have the last move on the day of judgment, he has allowed Satan some degree of influence and activity. Because 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19 says, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So our strange view of reality recognizes that Satan is real, and our strange view of reality recognizes that we are at war with him. And so Peter urges us to be vigilant. Did you pay attention to the instructions he gave regarding Satan there in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8? He instructed us to be sober-minded 
and watchful. Those instructions are kind of interesting because they are the exact same instructions that Paul gave in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 6 regarding the second coming of Jesus. In 1, Peter, I mean 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 6, Paul said, Keep awake and be sober because Jesus is coming back. And here in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, Peter says, Be sober and be watchful because the devil is still prowling around. And Peter knows that all too well. Peter knows the consequence of, of, of a lack of vigilance. Because there was a time in his own life when he was not sober-minded, when he was not watchful. And he fell victim to an attack from Satan, and Jesus told him to learn from it. But Jesus also told him to teach from it. See, in Luke chapter 22, and verse 31 and 32, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, this is after the denial of, of, of uh, Jesus that Peter was guilty of. He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus, in effect, said, Peter, you, you take what you learned. You take what you learned about being attacked by Satan, and you teach your brothers and sisters. You prepare them. And that's exactly what he's doing when he warns us about Satan's activity. But those, but those that reject the reality of Satan's existence, they're leaving themselves defenseless. And that brings us to the second reason our view of reality is strange. Not only is our view of reality strange because it insists that Satan exists, but it's also strange because it insists that we can resist. After warning us that Satan is on the prowl, Peter instructs us to resist him there in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 9. And although Satan is identified in Scripture as the ruler of this world, as the god of this world, as the prince of the power of the air, he can be resisted. And there's two primary reasons why Satan can be resisted. Number one, Satan can be resisted because Satan is inferior to God. Scripture asserts that God created everything, and not just everything that exists in the physical realm, but also everything that exists in the spiritual realm. We have this passage in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 17, which said, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, referring to Christ. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Did you notice that? Everything in heaven and earth were created by God through Christ. Everything that is visible and invisible were created by God through Christ. Every throne, every dominion, every ruler, every authority created by God through Christ. We have to remember that Satan is a created being. He is not equal to God because God has no equals. Satan is not the opposite of God as if he is a Marvel villain compared to a Marvel hero. They are not on equal playing field. God is far superior to Satan. They are not equal. Think about it. Satan's not omnipotent. He is limited in his power. He could not sift Peter without seeking permission first, and he cannot overpower us with temptation to the point that we cannot resist. 
according to the promise in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. And Satan's not omniscient. He's limited in his knowledge. Just like all other created beings, there are some things he doesn't know. And Jesus pointed this out when he said in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 36, Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Only God has that kind of knowledge. And Satan's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at one time. Just like all other created beings, he's confined to one location at a time. And this is apparent from Luke chapter 4 and verse 13, where after the temptation, we're told that the devil, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. He couldn't stay present with Jesus and be somewhere else. See, Satan is limited in his abilities. He, he's limited in his power, in his knowledge, and in his presence. Therefore, Scripture asserts in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4, that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So even though the devil is identified as the ruler of the world, the prince of the power of the air, he is inferior to the one whose spirit dwells in us. And for that reason, he can be resisted. The other reason he can be resisted is because he's a conquered enemy. It's in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, that Satan's future is shared with us. We're told the devil who had been deceived was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were, will be tormented day and night forever and ever. We're told what the final judgment on Satan will be. But I believe that Satan's conquered state is not just a, a futuristic event. I believe it's a current reality as well. One time, Jesus was casting out demons. This is in Matthew chapter 12. And Jesus is casting out demons, and his critics accused him of, of doing it because he, was, because he was in league with Satan. And the Pharisees said, It's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Jesus responded by saying, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Then a couple verses later, it's Matthew chapter 12, verse 28 through 29 that I want to draw your attention to. Jesus said, If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus indicates by that statement that the only reason he could cast out demons or plunder the people that Satan had stolen was because he had tied Satan up. In fact, Jesus used the exact same word in his tying up analogy here that was used in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 2 when John said that Satan was bound for a thousand years. Thus, Jesus, in effect, showed that his kingdom had already come into existence and his proof was that he had tied up Satan. It's also worth mentioning Revelation chapter 12 because Revelation chapter 12 depicts Jesus's life from birth to ascension through the birth of this child that, that a dragon tried to consume. And this child was caught up to God and to his throne in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 5. And then we're told that there was a war in heaven in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7. And Satan, who was depicted as this great dragon, was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him as a result of losing that war in heaven. The terminology used to depict Satan being thrown down in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9 is the exact same terminology used 
in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 3 to depict Satan being thrown into the abyss. It seems to indicate that Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection changed something in the cosmic war. And this is evident in a couple of New Testament passages that I haven't mentioned yet. For instance, there's Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15 that after Paul indicated that our record of debt was nailed to the cross, he added this, that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. That reference to the rulers and authorities seems to be a reference to spiritual, cosmic rulers and authorities. And then there's Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, where the author of Hebrews indicated that through death, Jesus destroyed the one who had power over death. That is the devil. And delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Notice the language of defeat that's associated with the devil here because of what Jesus accomplished through his death and resurrection. So even though Satan is still active, he's already been defeated. And that means that you and I can indeed resist him. But how? How can we resist Satan? That's what we really need for our strange view of reality to work. And Peter identifies three important steps in resisting Satan. First, he says that we can resist Satan by surrendering to God. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5 again. Look at verse 6. He starts off this entire section with these instructions. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 6. Now, it's very interesting because Peter starts off speaking about Satan's lion-like attack tactic by instructing us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Peter's point seems to be that the first thing you must do in order to stand against Satan is to kneel before God. See, humbling ourselves has been an important theme throughout 1 Peter. Except he hasn't always used the word humble. He's typically used the terminology of submission. And you can remember time and time again in these lessons, we've talked about how, how Peter has given us instructions to submit, whether it was to Christians as citizens submitting to governing authorities, or it was Christians as servants submitting to their masters, or Christians as spouses submitting to one another, or, or, or Christians as members of the Lord's body submitting to the elders of the Lord's body. Peter's time and time again come back to this idea that submission is necessary. And you can't submit without humility. Humility and submission go hand in hand. And Peter's point here seems to be that all submission leads back first and foremost to our submission to God. Our humility, our humbling of ourselves is our way of demonstrating of acknowledging that we are in submission to God. Now, why is our ability to resist contingent on our willingness to humble ourselves? I think it's because when you experience times of, of chaos or times of evil or times of suffering, Satan's going to try to tempt you to conclude that, that either God is impotent, meaning that God can't prevent your pain, or that God is insensitive, meaning that he doesn't care about your pain. See, Satan has all these schemes. 
He has this ability to use whatever experience we have to try to convince us, to try to turn us against God in some fashion. You've been there before. Some of you have have gone down that road where Satan was using some negative experience in your life and tried to use it to turn you against God. But here's the thing, if you are constantly surrendering yourself to the reign of God, then you are mentally preparing yourself to recognize and to resist Satan's attempts to turn you against God. Humility is necessary. Humbling yourself is necessary because it's your first line of defense when Satan comes at you trying to turn you against God. Because in your surrender to God, you live in a constant state of mental preparation knowing that God is in charge. I want you to consider how James uses similar words in James chapter 4. James quotes Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 34 much like Peter did. That's the passage that says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. James quotes that, but instead of following that quotation with instructions to humble ourselves, James instructs us to submit ourselves to God. And pay close attention to the instruction that comes next. After instructing us to submit to God, James instructs us to resist the devil. You see how they go hand in hand? James is saying that submitting to God and resisting the devil go together, that you can't have one without the other, and the end result of this combination of submission and resistance is that the devil will flee from you. It's your first line of defense against Satan. See, we can resist Satan, but it has to start by surrendering to God by allowing him to be in control. And that's the hardest step. We are not people that like to surrender control. There are many of us who would rather drive ourselves somewhere than ride with somebody else because we don't want to lose the control that the will offers. There, there are many of us who don't like when other people make decisions because we want to make those decisions for ourselves. We don't like to give up control. But in the grand scheme of this spiritual reality in which we find ourselves, that's the requirement. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. You think about those instructions that Jesus gave. Denying yourself means giving up control, allowing him to have control as we follow him. Surrendering is not easy, but it is necessary. And it's the first step in standing against Satan. The second step, and standing against Satan, is considering the church. Let me explain what I mean. I believe another one of Satan's tactics to destroy our faith is to convince us that we're alone. I believe Satan tries to convince us that we are unique when it comes to the evil and the suffering and the chaos that that we experience. And I think Satan wants us to think that nobody has it as bad as we do. You've been there before? Where life got so difficult and so challenging that you just came to the conclusion you're the only one that has to deal with this. That nobody knows what it's like to be you. But Peter indicates we can resist such thinking by considering our brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at what he writes in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 9. He says, resist him, resist Satan, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. In other words, Peter says you're not alone. Christians all over the world are experiencing the same reign of chaos the same presence of evil, the same degree of suffering. You're not alone. And sometimes 
Realizing that you're not alone is the most beneficial weapon in a battle. Have you ever thought about the armor of God that Paul presents in Galatians? I'm sorry, Ephesians. Have you ever thought about it? You got a sword, you got a shield, you got a breastplate, you got a helmet. You've got all this equipment, but isn't it always all forward facing? Is there any portion of the equipment that is specifically designed to protect your back? God didn't talk about any piece of armor that was specifically designed for your back. And whether or not that's just because the traditional armor of a, of a warrior in battle was forward-facing because that's where the attack was coming from, or maybe there's more to it than that. Maybe the reason there's no mention of backside armor is because your back is protected by your fellow soldiers. We use that language, don't we? I've got your back. Isn't that an expectation of the church when it comes to the spiritual battle in which we find ourselves? See, the church, our brothers and sisters in Christ, they're our allies in this battle. Let's not forget their presence. Let's not forget what they contribute. Let's not forget that they are at war with us. I mean, think about it. James instructs us to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another in James chapter 5 and verse 16. That's an ally. The author of Hebrews instructs us to encourage one another as long as it is called today. That's an ally. Paul instructs us in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2 to bear one another's burdens. That's an ally. And Peter, Peter instructed us back in chapter 4 and verse 10 to serve one another. That's an ally. We're not at war alone. We have other soldiers fighting with us. And the point is that in order to resist Satan, you need to realize that you are in this together. You have allies in your fellow believers who are at war with you. And we need to utilize one another's strength to succeed. Our resistance to Satan starts with our surrender to God, but it's emboldened as well by our understanding that we have a team working at this together. Don't go it alone. Because you don't have to. God has surrounded you with people of faith to help you fight these battles as well. We can resist Satan because our brothers and sisters in Christ are our ally. But they're not our only ally. See, the third reason we can resist Satan is by remembering God's promises. In other words, in other words we can resist Satan because we have an even greater ally who Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 10 has promised to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. We must never forget that our greatest ally is God. Think about it. God has promised to help us win our war against the devil. You got 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, which I alluded to earlier, and there we're reminded that God is faithful. And the evidence of his faithfulness to us is that he will not let us be tempted beyond our ability to withstand, but with every temptation he'll also provide a way of escape so that we may be able to endure it. God has promised to not let temptation be so great that we can't say no. And he's promised that he will always give us an escape route. We have to see it and we have to take it, but he's going to make sure it's available. God has promised to be our ally. And then there's 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 3, which again reminds us of God's faithfulness first and foremost. And because he is faithful, Paul says that he will establish us and guard us against the evil one. 
Isn't that beautiful? God has promised to guard us against the evil one. That doesn't mean we have unlimited protection, that, that, that Satan can't get to us somehow. It means that God is on our side. And also think about this passage that appears in John chapter 17 and verse 15. It's part of Jesus' last big prayer with the disciples. It's one of his last teachable moments. And Jesus prayed to God and asked him to protect the disciples from the evil one. Not to remove them from the world, but to simply to protect them from the evil one. And years later, after Jesus' death, after the establishment of the church, John, who was one of the disciples there and heard that prayer, John would write this in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 18. He would write, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. All of these verses remind us that God is on our side and that he has promised to restore, to confirm, to strengthen and establish us. And that should lead us to the same conclusion that Paul made back in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? We have the greatest ally ever. We have God. So yes, we can resist Satan. And part of that resistance entails us remembering that God's on our side. We truly are not alone in this battle. We have God working for us as well. I heard about an incident that happened in 1984 in a city in India that, as best I can pronounce it, is Bhopal. There was a leak in the Union Carbide Pesticide Plant. Around 32 tons of toxic gases were released into the atmosphere from that leak. The gas was odorless, colorless, and poisonous. People began to choke, their eyes began to water, and eventually people began to to pass out. Thousands were rushed to the hospital, and before that whole terrible ordeal was dealt with, over 3,000 people died from that poisonous gas. They died from a threat they could not see. You know, it's hard to battle an enemy when you can't see him. It's even harder to battle an enemy when you deny that he exists. So the point today is simply this. Satan, who is our opponent, who is our adversary, who is our accuser, he is looking for a way to wreck our faith. And he's on the prowl, and and he's waiting for an opportunity to attack And in order to not give him an opportunity, in order to stand against his schemes, in order to avoid being devoured by him, we must be ready. And the first step to such readiness is awareness. And this is why those who are strange in this world have a strange view of reality. Because we recognize that there is an opponent out there who's wrestling with us. And we intend to fight. And we know the victory already is ours to be had. So the question today is, have you secured your victory? Have you secured your victory? If not, today is the perfect opportunity to do so. Maybe maybe you have never fulfilled God's plan for your life to become a child of his, to enter into the realm of those promises that he's made, to become a part of the family that's going to fight alongside of you. Maybe right now today, that's the decision you need to make. 
And you can make that decision by confessing your faith in Jesus Christ as the risen Son of God, by repenting of your sins and by being immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. But it may be today also that you've made that decision, that you have become a part of the family of God that's fighting this spiritual war. Maybe you know those promises that God has made, but Satan has found his way into your life somehow. He's managed to cause your, your faith to crack. He's managed to lure you back into sin. Maybe you feel all alone right now. Maybe, maybe you've lost sight of God. Maybe you need to return. Return to the battle lines with those who are fighting alongside you. See, we also extend this invitation not only for those who, who may never have made the decision to become a child of God, but we extend it for those who have wandered away, for those who may just need the prayers of these soldiers right now, for those who, who, who may need the rallying of these soldiers to help protect you for a little while. For those who just need to come back and start fighting again. Whatever your need is today, don't forget our strange view of reality. Don't forget who the real opponent is. And don't forget who your greatest ally is. And if you need to respond to the invitation today, we invite you to come while we stand and sing. Are the gentle